Well, uh, this chapter of Revelation, uh, if there's any chapter of Revelation that's caused more con- controversy, uh, it's possibly this one. Uh, there's been more speculation and fear and confusion over this than any other chapter in Revelation. Uh, so if you heard that and you thought, what on earth is that all about? Uh, that's okay. Uh, if it's the first time you've heard it, or even if it's You've heard it many times and you're still not sure. That's, that's okay. But it's important for us to remember the way that John writes in this letter. It's called apocalyptic literature and he paints a picture of what he's seen in a vision. So as we hear him speak, we're supposed to kind of picture in our imagination the, the picture that he's painting. Uh, so the, the two great beasts. And then we're supposed to ask the question, well, what what does that all mean? What does that represent? We're not meant to take that as a literal description of events happening on earth, but something in a vision that conveys uh, spiritual truths that we are to know. Now, in the popular imagination of this, uh, this chapter, probably the only thing that most people know about is that end of verse 18, the last words, the number 666. If you ask the average person on the street, what does 666 mean? They might know it has something to do with evil, maybe to do with the devil, but they probably couldn't tell you much more than that. They may know that it comes from the book of Revelation. And unfortunately, their knowledge of this number and the confusion over it is unfortunately due to the way that Christians have communicated, uh, often the televangelist type, uh, with unhelpful speculation and uh, all these end time scenarios. For a number that's only appeared, only appears once in the whole Bible, that's received a lot of attention. But I want to briefly deal with that before we dig into the passage so that we can see what that number meant for the very first recipients of the book of Revelation. Whenever we seek to interpret a Bible passage, we need to know firstly what it was saying to the original readers before we fall into the temptation of imposing on it our modern 21st century assumptions. Now the first thing to clear up is that the Greek of that number is not 666. It is 666 or one large number, 666. So it's not a trio of sixes. And it's also helpful for us to know, so that's actually how it should be translated in words, 666. It's also helpful to know that some early copies of the book of Revelation actually have 666. 16, 610, 6. So that number is not, as some have said and as I, I actually used to say, a, an inferior version of 777, God's number apparently. Numbers, God doesn't have a number. Numbers don't have spiritual significance or power in the sense that we can use that number to invoke God or invoke uh, the devil. That's numerology and that's, that's actually a form of witchcraft which is forbidden by the Bible. God doesn't have a special number or a favourite number. 
numbers were created by human beings and they're used in the Bible quite often because the Bible is written in human language and they're used in a symbolic way to communicate uh, something and in this case to uh, communicate a spiritual reality. But even this number here doesn't even have a spiritual symbolism. It's actually a code because we're told that we need understanding to calculate the number of the beast, to do the maths. It was a practice in the ancient world to assign numerical value to the letters of the alphabet. So in Hebrew, which doesn't have numerals like we have in English, there was a number assigned to each character. So if you wanted to have a a number in your writing, you would use the characters of the alphabet. This meant that any word could be given a numerical value by adding up the value of the letters. Now, this is called gematria. Gematria is not numerology. So it's not saying there's a hidden divine code or a fingerprint in the Bible that the readers didn't know was there. It's simply a clever way that the writers used to reinforce a point. And it was also a code that would be helpful to use for people's security. It would protect the messengers carrying a book by using a code that only the readers would understand, especially if it mentioned events or people of significance. So if Revelation was found by the Roman authorities and it talked about Rome, for example, and they used a code, then it wouldn't be seen as that politically seditious document. And that's what's happening here. So the readers of Revelation are told that they can identify the person whom this beast symbolises, whose name has the numerical value of 666. Now there are a few people that you could add up the numbers of the value of their letters in their name and come to 666 and people have speculated over that too. But the one that I think is the most likely one for the original readers of Revelation is the Roman Emperor Nero, Nero Caesar. The numerical values of the Hebrew spelling of the name Neron Caesar, as Greek speakers pronounced it, is 666. Now, Latin speakers pronounced it Nero Caesar with no N. They dropped the N, which made the numerical value 616. So, the New Testament manuscripts that have 616 came were a little bit later when Christianity was spreading across the Roman Empire and there were more Latin speakers uh, reading the Bible. Who was Nero? He was the Roman emperor who unleashed violent persecution against Christians in the mid-60s, from November 64 to his death in June 68. Interestingly, about three and a half years. Nero famously, he blamed the great fire of Rome on the Christians. 
although many of his opponents said he started the fire to clear a space to build his new palace. But the Christians were the scapegoat. They were seen as a secret, uh, seditious sect. But they were also known as pacifists. So you could blame them, persecute them and know that they wouldn't fight back. Now, uh, many scholars believe that Revelation was written later in the 90s under the persecution of the Emperor Diocletian. However, it would still work since Nero would have been in living memory of people even in the, the 90s. And in a sense, Nero was the, the prototype for all future state uh, Roman persecutions of Christians. Any future persecuting emperor would be seen as emulating Nero. There was even a myth amongst the Romans that Nero would one day be resurrected and so some of the future empire, emperors were hailed by people as a resurrected Nero. Now, 666 being Nero doesn't make this chapter obsolete for us today, 2,000 years later, because these two beasts described in this chapter, they're not necessarily two specific people who will turn up at a specific moment in history. They're a description of people and movements and ideas that God's people have had to contend with and will continue to contend with in every generation and in every time. So the Christians in the first century were to see the beast as describing Nero and other emperors who emulated him. Other generations since have faced different enemies but which have still displayed those same characteristics. So before we work our way through this vision, I want to look at one other thing that will help set the scene. Uh, We'll look at what John says in one of his letters where he speaks of the figure famously known as the Antichrist, which we'll see shortly is really just another term for this first beast. See how he describes it. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now some important things to note here. When he says it is the last hour, he's clearly not saying Jesus is going to return within our lifetime, within his lifetime. If he meant that, he was seriously mistaken and we kind of cast into doubt everything else he says. That term, the last hour, is another way of saying the last days or the end of the age, the the time that we are in now between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the time when all of God's promises have reached their fulfilment in Jesus and we are in the final stage of the long human history, at least in this era. 
as we know, that stage has taken nearly 2,000 years. And how much longer it will take? Well, that's in the Father's hands. But secondly, see how he's referring to something that his readers have heard. The Antichrist is coming. It's what they've heard. So they've been told to expect a prominent figure who will arise and which will in some way mark the the bit of the end bit of the last days just before Jesus returns. But notice that he he neither confirms nor denies that this will be the case. He just says, You've heard this and then he shifts their thoughts from speculation about a future Antichrist to the reality of the present. He says, now many antichrists have come. See, John's readers were in a dangerous situation. They were being visited by travelling apostles and prophets who were bringing a false gospel. They were denying the true faith that, that these people had already received from John and the other apostles. They were preaching a false Jesus. They were denying his identity as the Christ. They were denying him as the only begotten Son of the Father. See there in verse 22. Instead of theorising about the future then and what problems may face future generations, they needed to contend with what was happening in the present and recognise and deal with the present threats to the Gospel. See, he couldn't be clearer than that in verse 22, could he? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son, these false teachers they were facing at the time. So, his message is don't sit waiting for some future Antichrist because it's already here. It's embodied and expressed in anyone who opposes and denies the Gospel and undermines the witness of the Church to the true Jesus. So, with that understanding, we can see that there have been antichrists popping up all the way through the Bible story. It began with Cain. Cain saw that his brother's sacrifice of a lamb was accepted by God. Why was it accepted? Because it pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, the true Lamb of God. And it showed that righteousness comes by faith, not by works. So he rose up and he killed Abel. It wasn't so much an attack on his brother as an attack on God himself who had promised to crush the head of the serpent through uh, Eve's offspring. So from that moment on, this spirit of Antichrist was active, energised by the devil in every person, every kingdom, every form of idolatry that opposed Israel, that opposed God and his work and his plan to send his son. So with all of that biblical and historical background, let's finally look at the text where I trust we'll see these things being depicted and most importantly we'll see what it means to us today as we seek to live lives, uh, our lives as Christ's people. So 
We saw last week that the devil is a creature, he's limited, he isn't able to create anything new. He can only respond and react to the Father's plan and he comes up with cheap imitations and parodies of what God does. This is his strategy in his attack upon the church, to come up with something convincing enough to lead people astray. He knows he can't destroy God. He knows he can't destroy us as God's people. He knows his time is short and that his ultimate destiny is destruction. So all he can do now is distract us and discourage us, hinder us in our task as the church of proclaiming the gospel in the world. So when we take these three figures, last week's red dragon, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, what we see is a a false trinity that mimics the true trinity of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Satan plagiarises the truth of who God is and how he works and he mashes up an alternative version with just enough truth to draw people in but enough error to lead them astray. So, in this vision, we saw at the end of chapter chapter 12, This dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea. This dragon, this red dragon, the devil, is the anti-father. See, he claims authority in heaven and on earth. He claims to be the source of authority on earth, just as the true father is the source of all authority, of everything. As we we look at Satan's parody of the truth, we're going to be reminded of what the truth actually is about who our God is. This dragon stands on the shore and he causes another beast, his son, to come into being. It's a parody of the truth that God the Son is begotten by the Father. The Son, Jesus the Son, receives his being and his life and his identity from the Father. However, it is an eternal begottenness in that there never was a time that the Son didn't exist. God God the Son has always been at the side of God the Father, joyfully doing his will. So the devil tries to mimic that, bringing the son forth. We're told in verse 2, the dragon bestows his authority on the son. Just as the true father gives his authority to the son by making him king of kings and lord of lords. But see how his goal is to be worshipped and they worshipped the dragon. The whole earth worships the dragon. All that God does 
is so that his creatures would ultimately give glory to the Father through Jesus, the Son. So there's the, the anti-father, the, the, um, the plagiarised version. Jesus called the devil the father of lies and the father of all who do his will. So just as the true father has a plan, so this dragon has a plan and he seeks to accomplish this plan through the beast. But it's a plan of lies. So the first lesson from that is Make sure you know who your true Father is. Anyone apart from the true and living God who tries to offer us the benefits that God's fatherhood alone can give us is a charlatan and is doing the devil's work. So make sure that you have come to the true Father through Jesus, his Son. So this beast from the sea is a counterfeit son or an antichrist. And see how he mimics the true Christ. See how he's in the image of his father. He has seven heads, ten diadems, uh, ten horns, seven heads and ten diadems on his heads. He's, he reflects the dragon in that. What do we know about the true Christ? We're told that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of his Father. It's in Jesus Christ that we've been given that full and complete revelation of God, or at least everything that we need to know as creatures to have a relationship with him. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Another aspect of this image being in the image is the names on his heads that reflect the dragon who brought him forth. Blasphemous names. Well, Jesus came into the world bearing his father's name. Not literally, but in the sense that he's made the father known to us and through him we've been adopted into the father's family And as we'll see next week, the Father's name is now being placed on us as his beloved children, figuratively. That's what Jesus meant when he prayed this prayer. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, praying for us, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, as I've already mentioned in verse uh, 2, the beast receives his authority from his father, the dragon. Jesus, the true king, he doesn't rule in his own right, even though as the eternal son he has every right to claim that rule. Instead, in love for the father and in love for us, he chose to receive that authority as a gift from the father. It was given to him on the basis of his humble service when he 
took on human form and became a servant and was obedient even to the death of the cross. So he hasn't grasped authority as a right but he's received it from the Father as a reward. Verse 3, we're told that this beast looks like he's been slain and miraculously resurrected. There's the clearest way that he's mimicking the true Christ. He claims to have overcome death and therefore to give the same power to those who follow him. But notice that his head only seemed to have a mortal wound that had been healed. He can only mimic. He can't reproduce Jesus' death and resurrection. So his offer of power over life and death is empty. Only Jesus can say, as he did in chapter 1, I am the living one who died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Verse 4, we're told that he causes people to worship his father, the dragon, just as Jesus called people to worship the father in spirit and in truth. We come with thankful praise to the father for his great love in giving us his son. To see that how the people also worship the beast because it appears that there's no one like him and that he is undefeatable. Well, we worship Jesus. We declare him as Lord, the only Lord, because he has risen from the dead. There is no one like him. He is the only Saviour, the only Lord, the only one who's able to protect us from evil, the only one to whom we can come to hear the words of eternal life. So this beast is known for the words he speaks in verse 5, haughty and blasphemous words. Instead of words of grace and truth, they're words of haughtiness and blasphemy. He teaches people not to fear and honour God, but to dishonour him. And this beast can only speak from his true nature, his own heart. Well, Jesus also spoke the truth from the truth of his heart and out of his mouth flowed words of truth and grace and peace and life and praise to the Father. So this first beast represents then anything or anyone who claims to be able to give to us the benefits that only Jesus can give. True knowledge of the Father, victory over death, security in this life and true eternal life beyond the grave and the ability to live a life of true spiritual worship. It's all the alternative Gospels an alternative Christ that we can be tempted to put our trust in which offer us those things, freedom and life, but they actually bring slavery and death. For the first century Christians, all of that was on offer through the Roman Empire and its emperor. 
its religions, its Caesar. Caesar was described as the king of kings over all the kings of the earth. He was hailed as an incarnation of the gods. He was the one who supposedly would establish peace on earth, provided all people swore allegiance to him and called him Lord. So those who rejected Caesar as Lord and maintained allegiance to another Lord, to the Lord Jesus, would find very quickly that this peace would turn into hostility. He was allowed to make war, verse 7, on the saints and to conquer them. Now today we don't have Rome and its empire in that form, but we must still be on the lookout for all the alternative Christs who are vying for power and control, whether they're political powers, social movements, philosophies, religions, who claim to offer what Jesus Christ alone gives. If we as the church start looking to the world for our standards of morality, letting the world tell us what's right and wrong, good and evil, or when we let the world and its values actually begin to shape our understanding of God himself so that we begin to define God in, along the lines of what the world wants so that we no longer offend people, then we've given space for this beast, this false Christ, and we'll watch the church inexorably curl up and die. But when we refuse to bow down at the altar of the world or go along with the world's version of Christ, we'll face opposition and hostility, as Jesus said we would. We may not be burned on a stake or thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum, as Nero did to the Christians. He may take the form of exclusion, being squeezed out so that we can no longer operate fully in the structures of society. Just as uh, we saw in verse 17, the first Christians who didn't have this mark of ownership of the beast on them, who didn't swear loyalty to Caesar as Lord, they couldn't buy or sell. They were pushed out. We must keep reminding ourselves that our current comfort and our prosperity isn't a result of our faithfulness to Christ. It's a blessing from God. We can be thankful for it. We can use it to his glory but we don't have all of these comforts and this security and safety because we've earned God's favour. We must remember Jesus' words that faithfulness to him means being prepared to have all of this taken away from us. And that public loyalty to Jesus will lead to hostility. It will lead to exclusion from the world. So how are you to ensure that you're safe from this beast, this antichrist? Well, we're told in verse 8, make sure that your name is written in the book of life of the true Christ, the Lamb who was slain. 
Note that it's not us who write our our name in the book because that happened before the foundation of the world when we were chosen by the Father in him. However, we must make sure that we have heard the call of the Gospel, that we have truly put our trust in him alone. He is the only way. Outside of him there is no salvation from judgment as we see in verse 10. This is a paraphrase from Jeremiah chapter 15 which speaks of the inevitability of judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem. What he's saying here is those who forsake trusting in the Lord Jesus and trust instead in Satan's counterfeit will have nowhere to turn. So make sure your trust is in the true Jesus. Now this first beast speaks of uh, threats from without, the external powers using the devil's energy to try and destroy God's church. The second beast second beast from the earth speaks of threats from within. This is the devil's counterfeit of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the anti-spirit. And see how he mimics the work of the true Holy Spirit. Verse 11, uh, he, he reveals in a sense the Father and the Son. He displays characteristics of a lamb, but his words show him to be the mouthpiece of the dragon. Now what's the work of the true Holy Spirit? It is to primarily show us Jesus and the Father, to lead us to cry out, Jesus is Lord and Abba Father. He's the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son so that when he's given to us, he doesn't point us to himself, he points us to the Father and the Son. He takes all that belongs to them, makes it known to us. That's how we can know if something is truly a work of the Spirit. Does it lead us to see Jesus and to worship the Father through him? Now this beast uh, communicates, in verse 12, the authority of the first beast, leading people to worship the first beast because of his so-called death and resurrection. In all that the true Holy Spirit communicates to us of Jesus, the central theme will always be the power and the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. He brings us to see the cross more clearly and with that, the conviction of our sin that put Jesus there and he shows more clearly what it means to be justified by faith in his resurrection power. The Spirit gives us hope that comes from knowing that Jesus' death and resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. So any spirit that doesn't show us the crucified and risen Jesus is not the true spirit. Verse 13, we're told that he does signs and miracles 
to believe, to make people believe that the first beast is the true Christ. But see how it's a idolatrous worship because it involves making an image. Miraculous or supernatural activities aren't in themselves proof of God's power or presence. The devil will always mimic the power of God, just like the magicians in Egypt mimicked, copied the miracles done through Moses and Aaron. So whenever someone claims to have done a miracle or to have seen a miracle, we must always test it by firstly hearing the message that comes along with it if there is a message and by seeing the fruit of it in the kind of worship that it leads to. If the worship is focused on the miracle itself or if it is worship that treats God like a vending machine where we get what we want by pushing the right buttons or if the worship is focused on the experience of worship itself instead of Jesus Christ as the object of worship, then our worship has become idolatry, even if we don't have a literal image that we bow down to. And as we saw earlier, he gives worshippers a mark. That mark seals their identity as devoted slaves of the first beast because it's the beast's name. Someone has their name written on you, it means they own you. But what does the true spirit do? The spirit marks us with the name of the true Jesus and the true Father. In fact, he himself is the stamp of ownership that the Father and the Son gives us, the guarantee of our adoption, us future that is secure in the new creation. Now, just to close, there were two calls in this passage that show us how we are to respond to this strategy of the devil. Endurance and faith, in verse 10, when faced with the external threats of the first beast, when opposition comes, when persecution comes, when we have refused to compromise our testimony of Jesus, we are to stand firm and trust him, faith, endurance and faith. We're not to fight back, we're not to argue with the beast, we're not to try and overcome it, we're to stand firm and entrust ourselves to our faithful creator, our faithful saviour, knowing that he has the victory already and he will give us that victory. And then verse 18 is a call for wisdom. When faced with those internal threats of the false spirit, wisdom means we need to be diligent in knowing, in studying God's word so that we'll be able to discern truth from error, real from counterfeit. The key to spotting a counterfeit isn't to study the counterfeit, it's to study the real thing so that as soon as the counterfeit appears you'll notice that it's not right, it's not, it's not true. So we need to be looking to him, to Jesus, not our own cleverness, to see, to understand the wonderful truths of the gospel and we need to be asking him for wisdom 
to walk, to trust in a way that is glorifying to him. Let's pray.